Hey guys, Daniel Shaw here. Thanks for tuning in. This episode of Gunfighter Cast is easily one of my favorite episodes I have ever recorded. I usually hate listening to myself, but I've listened to this thing three times now. The actionable information contained in this podcast, and even more so in Andy's book, Warnings Unheeded, can save lives in the future. So do me a favor and share this episode of Gunfighter Cast on whatever channels you have access to. All right, here we go. The following calls and radio traffic have been edited for brevity, and they do not depict the actual timeline. Fire department, fire department, this is a sergeant street railroad from the hospital that's in gunshots, there's some people shot. Can you get, can you get the police here? Yeah, sure thing. Thank you, Carmen. I'm the boss. 911, is this reference shots being fired on Fairchild Base? Yes, it is. The hospital is a crazy guy out here. We're shooting with an automatic weapon. Hospital. Uh, ma'am? Okay. It's right. one individual. All I got to see was a weapon. Looks like an AK-47. Champion? Yes. Fairchild Hospital. We got a guy going through the hospital shooting people real old right now. Okay, we got we got people in route right now. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Gunfighter Casks. I'm still hanging out with Andy Brown, and we're talking about his book, Warnings Unheeded, and the events that took place on June 20th, 1994, at Fairchild Air Force Base. Primary Weapon Systems, or PWS, is a state-of-the-art machine shop in Boise, Idaho. PWS makes almost all their rifle components in-house, and the parts they don't make, they acquire from the highest quality manufacturers in the United States. The Mod 2 series rifles from PWS are some of the most feature-rich ARs on the market. One of those features is the Mod 2 Enhanced Buffer Tube, which has a ratchet lock design that eliminates the need for staking while providing a solid lockup with the ability to remove it easily in the future. Go take a look at primaryweapons.com. Primary Weapon Systems. Because it's time. Andy, on June 20th, can you tell me what you were doing and how the events led you to, I don't know a better way of putting it, lasering a dude in the face at 75 yards? (laughs) All right. I was in the security police, which is the Air Force Military Police, stationed at Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane, I had been a patrolman, law enforcement specialist, for five years. I had been at, in Spokane at Fairchild for about a year. And I was usually a motorized patrolman, but I was on bike patrol that day. It was my second day ever riding a bike as a patrolman. But I was a swing shift, which started at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Andy, were you physically conditioned and used to riding a bike? 
not used to riding an actual bicycle, but I'd just come back from Saudi Arabia where the only thing to do was work out. So I spent a lot of time in our, what we call a gym. It was a tent with a with some weights and a stationary bike. I, I didn't want to interrupt so. you, but as I was reading the book, I was like, man, he, he made a heck of a ride quickly over there. There there had to have been some cardio going. Yeah, I did a lot of beer drinking too, but they <laughs> couldn't uh, do anything over it in Saudi other than work out. But when I was home, I worked out and drank a lot of beer. But yeah, I was in pretty good shape. I was only 24 years old, so that helped. But... I had just finished patrolling some housing areas on the base, and it just so happened our hospital was located just outside of our perimeter on some land that was leased from the Spokane County, and it was surrounded by two housing areas, one on either side of it. So I was headed off base to go and patrol those two housing areas, but on, the, on my way out there, I stopped at a gate shack and was visiting with a gate guard. And I was also enjoying his air conditioning because it was a June day in Spokane in eastern Washington. It gets pretty hot. And that's when a call came over our radio that there was a man in, in the hospital running around with a shotgun. So as soon as that broadcast started, I jumped, went, out, went outside, jumped on my bike and started pedaling down the road that led to our hospital. It was about a three-tenths of a mile away from the gate to the, the hospital campus. And as I was pedaling there, there was a lot of vehicles fleeing the area, and some of them were rolling down their windows and trying to warn me of of what was up ahead, but I couldn't hear them. I think some auditory exclusion had already set in. As I neared the hospital campus, there was a crowd of people that was running away from the area there in the street there, and I rode through the crowd and was asking them, where is he? And they all pointed behind them and said, there's a man with a gun. He's over there shooting people. So I continued riding toward the, the hospital. And as I got closer, I could hear gunfire. And I still couldn't see where it was coming from. The sound was kind of reverberating off of the buildings. So I couldn't really locate it. But eventually, or would probably just a couple of seconds went by, and I, I saw an individual in the street. He was dressed in dark clothing and had a long gun at his hip. And he was firing it to his left and right from the hip. So I coasted up onto a sidewalk, dumped the bike, and went to a kneeling position as I drew my Beretta. And at the time, I just knew that a man was running around at the hospital with a shotgun. I didn't realize that he had killed anybody yet. And there was also, I could see some people hiding and running around in the background, ducking behind cars and crawling around on the ground. So I was a little hesitant to just open fire on the on the individual with the rifle. And I yelled at him, identified myself and yelled at him and told him to drop the weapon and he didn't. I think he might have fired another round off to his side and then yelled at him again and he started to move into my direction and began to fire and in my direction as well. So that's when I decided to return fire. And I didn't realize how far away he was until my first clue that he was pretty far away was that I couldn't find him behind my front sight. His body was uh, 
pretty much obscured entirely by the front post of the Beretta. But I finally did get a decent sight picture and began working the trigger. I ended up firing four rounds and was getting a little, didn't, didn't hesitate in pulling the trigger. I continued working it and getting a sight picture and, and sending rounds down his way, but I was, in the back of my mind, I was frustrated that he wasn't reacting, didn't think I was hitting him. But at the time, we were required to carry 9 mil ball ammo without no hollow points in it, so if I was hitting him, it, if it wasn't in a vital area, I don't think I would have seen a reaction. On the fourth round, he kicked up in the air and spun around and landed on his back. And I felt a great sense of relief there. The uh, sheriff's investigation determined that my final round was fired from a distance uh, between 68 and 71 yards, but we just call it 70. And I had hit him with one of the first three shots, but it was a shoulder hit and just passed superficially through and through. But the fourth round hit him pretty much on the bridge of the nose and went through his brain and, and disrupted his spinal column. Prior to my arrival, he had started out in one of our hospital buildings, which was a an annex building. It was an old military barracks. So it was a long, narrow, three-story building. Andy, I, I don't want to interrupt you because I, I know where you're going, but I, I want to make sure the listeners understand why he was in that building. Okay. Why it was targeted specifically. He had been identified numerous times in his career as uh, in need of mental health help. When he was at basic training, um, he was recommended for discharge and fell through the cracks. The, that recommendation was overruled. Same thing happened at his tech school, and then he was allowed to be stationed at Fairchild, and he was also identified as a in a need, need of mental health help and saw the doctors there at Fairchild's mental health facility numerous times. And he went on to remain in the military, but for some reason he's always fixated on, on those doctors, even though he moved on to a different base. So when he was eventually kicked out, he returned to Spokane and sought his revenge at that mental health clinic. So that's, that's pr- pretty much why he started um, his rampage in that building. So, although the initial report was that he had a shotgun, that was a misidentification of his weapon. What he had was a Mac 90, which is a an AK-47 variant or a clone of the AK, and he had a 75-round drum clip. Back in that day, there was also a, a shotgun that had a drum magazine. So I think somebody might have misidentified it because of the unique magazine that it had 
it was interesting the way he did. He bought this gun and he he went into the mental health in the annex there, and he went into the bathroom carrying a a big duffel bag with a a fairly large white box in it uh, protruding out. Walks to the bathroom, gets into the corner stall, takes his gun out, leaves the bag, leaves everything else, uh, loads the gun, charges the gun. I'm, I'm I'm speculating on loading the gun in there and charging the gun in there, just because looking at the box, if the gun was in there, I'm not sure if the magazine could have been installed in the or inserted in the gun and and then he he walked out of the bathroom am i am I on track that sounds like a good speculation and that that is what happened there as far as he staged in the bathroom one of the first things that stood out to me here uh and one of the things that 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 i teach in uh mine and ryan hoover's active killer defense is people taking action that's how lives get saved is people taking action the next thing that happened was he walked down the hall between two airmen and the gun actually brushed against the belly of one of them and nobody took any action. And that really, that, that stood out to me. That's, that's my, my, one of my missions in life is to educate people to, when you see that, grab that gun, point it safe direction, tackle this guy, take control. You know, you had every opportunity right there, but you know, we, we didn't see this kind of stuff that much in, at the time. And and I'm thinking I don't want to beat the guys up who, who didn't do anything because they were just standing there kind of dumbfounded. Uh, but I would like to think that nowadays, if we could reach more people with training to recognize, hey, something bad's going down right now. I'm right here. I have an opportunity. I need to seize that opportunity to save lives. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel bad bashing on them also, but I think they were in denial and didn't know what to do. But also, I think it's a product of training because the security police used to always conduct anti-robbery exercises. And I don't know how many statements I read that when somebody said they saw the gunman or they heard gunfire, the first thing they thought was it was an exercise, yeah. a, a practice, a training scenario. But they don't, they don't often use live rounds or even blanks in a training scenario. It's something that needs to be addressed that make sure people know when training is going to happen and make sure it's clearly discernible between an incident that's real so people will know the difference between the two and be able to act immediately. And and I would be happy to tell people that if you see something like that in a public environment, go ahead and take them out and you can say you're sorry later on if they mess up some drill or scenario. Yeah, exactly. Don't be afraid to step in there even if you're screwing up somebody's training day. Another incident that was a missed opportunity was the taxi driver who drove him out there from he had Melberg had gotten a uh, hotel in Spokane and called a cab to take him out to Fairchild and he was acting so bizarrely the cab driver thought he was drunk or on drugs but he also mentioned that he knew that the white styrofoam box protruding from his mm-hmm. gym bag was a rifle case and he drove him out to a military hospital and and dropped him off at the front door without thinking twice about it. So that's that's part of the thing now. You know, I talk about it sometimes. You know, the the government, the U.S. government has this thing that says, if you see something, say something. Yeah. But they don't do a very good job of explaining to people what that something may be. Yeah, good. that's a good point. Need need further training. Exactly. And it, it could be, it, it's simple. Like, hey, this, this doesn't add up. How about don't take him to the hospital, take him to the front gate? It could have easily been averted right there from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah take him to the front gate where there's an armed guard or take him to the nearest police station or 
That's a good point. Well, it, it messes up your timeline, and I want you to go back to right where we left off after he passes through those two guys. But I, I have to bring up another note that I took, another another missed opportunity since we're talking about that during the event. And I, for, I forget the gentleman's name. Uh, I think it was Root. If I'm not mistaken, he was on. Okay. The, it was a vehicle length from from Dean Melberg, and uh, in his statement in the book, was he recognized the click of the magazine drum? Yeah, because he owns one, owns the same one. So he knew that his gun was inoperable for at least a short period of time until he he gained more spring tension and tightened it back up. One of the things that we teach is is creating a delay, creating a stoppage. And if we recognize a stoppage in a gun with the shooter or they have to reload the gun, that is a that's time that just became available to me, an opportunity to go stop that person. Now chances are they're armed with a handgun and, and most likely a knife in most events, but when we see the gun being inoperable for a period of time, it, it's possible that him and the other gentleman that was near there could have closed that distance and made the tackle and, and controlled that. And it, I don't want to armchair quarterback. That's not my intention. It's a training thing. It's I, yeah, exactly. I need to be looking for these opportunities. And we see these opportunities in, in almost every single event. We saw it when Congresswoman Gabby, Gabby Giffords was shot, and that opportunity was seized by the bystanders there when that man was reloading, and they made the tackle, and they, they took control of the situation. It's, it's an opportunity that we have to look for, and people should be trained to look for. He chose to, to move away. You can't say bad move or, or whatever. I wasn't there. But it, if I have to be able to think about these things and recognize them as opportunities, and I would love to have the public more aware of that and trained in that. No, yeah, that's that's good training. I don't know how far away Dave Root was when he recognized that that gun was interoperable for for that amount of time. He, the uh, drum magazine has like a butterfly key on the back of it where you have to wind the spring tension to have it f- continue to feed the, the bullets. And he recognized that because he had just fitted his uh, son's SKS with a similar magazine. So I don't know if he was close enough to have charged him or not but i know it did give him an opportunity to to at least flee the scene but that is an excellent thing to be training people to do to recognize when there's an opportunity which based on his distance may have been the the absolute best choice there is right there because he, yeah he would know how long it would take him to get that magazine back to tension that it needed and everything else but yeah definitely a, another good lesson learned there so he had just passed through two airmen there and, and i can't remember their rank so i'm just calling them airmen i know that's actually a rank and it's probably not accurate with the the gentleman that we're it's like calling him a soldier or a marine so yeah, you can call him airman so he, he passed through there, and, and then you can continue from there. Andy, you know much better than I do. All right. So after he stepped out of the, the bathroom there and walked down the hall with the rifle, he went to the end of the hall where the mental health clinic was and was looking at the signs on the door. And when he identified the doctors who he had the grudge with, he kicked the doors in and, and shot the first doctor in the chest and turned and there was a patient in there that he met eyes with and pointed the rifle at, but for some reason decided not to shoot her and went back out in the hallway and went two doors down to the psychiatrist, the base psychiatrist, and kicked his door in and shot him in the chest and then fired down the hall at people who were fleeing the annex and went outside into the parking lot and crossed the parking lot into the main hospital where he continued to, to shoot it pretty much anything he saw that moved men, women, or children. He fired at some people in the hospital, in the uh, parking lot and wounded uh, at least one or two people there. 
before he went into the hospital lobby where he, most of the casualties were in the hospital lobby where it was a, a bottleneck. People tried to funnel down a hallway as he was opening fire in the lobby. There was a, another missed opportunity where an individual in the pharmacy, which was a secure facility, but there were two dispensing windows or two prescription windows. He looked out the the window of the pharmacy into the lobby and saw the rifle and reached for a gun that was usually on his hip. He was going to take the gunman out, but then he realized that he was no longer authorized to carry that pistol. This was the duty. airman that was uh, recently cross-trained from security police over to working in the pharmacy. Yep, he cross-trained out of the security police career field into the medical field, but he was it was a recent enough transfer that he still instinctively reached for the M9 that would have been on his hip if he had been on duty as a cop that day. So he was forced to just stay in the pharmacy and dial 911 while he heard people getting killed and wounded outside the pharmacy window. The events that that Andy just covered, he covered them in about a minute and a half. In the book, you're looking at 15, 20 pages that details the entire movement, every almost every shot fired, uh, at, at least the ones that are that are being wounded, and and it's very graphic and, and descriptive, and and not in a way that's trying to be show the the extent of the evil, but in and to actually see what happened, the extent of the the injuries, because that's going to seriously come into play here shortly. I went out of my way to not be blood and guts graphic, but to be descriptive. Yes of what was happening so that people could get a, an idea of what it's like to be there. But I didn't need to embellish the the drama and the and because it's already there in the in the story itself. But one of the hardest things was trying to figure out what to include from all the stacks of research that I had. The first draft of this book was probably three times as big as the final version, which ended up being about three hundred and sixty pages in itself. But I put in there as many details as I thought people could learn from and uh, that would be beneficial to the to the reader without bogging them down. So from the pharmacy, he pursued that crowd that was running down into the west wing of the hospital and wounded several people there. There were several instances where people had wished they had firearms, but even though nobody was allowed to carry that day, it didn't stop at least two people from physically intervening with with the gunman. Um, at the end of that West Wing hallway was our shot clinic, and there was a individual in there. I believe he was also a former security policeman, but he was currently working for Morale Welfare and Recreation, but he was at the shot clinic with his two-year-old getting their, getting their shots. And there were several other parents and children in that shot clinic. But when that sergeant heard the gunfire, he perched himself on, on a chair by the door. And when he saw the barrel of the rifle come through the door, he lunged at it and struggled with the gunman to try to get control of the weapon. And when he couldn't, he pushed him outside and, and shut the door and barricaded the door and the gunman sought easier victims elsewhere in the hospital. You know, I refer to that in, in the training that I do as uh, creating a delay. 
Yeah. And who who knows how many lives that delay may have saved may have may have saved. There's just no way to tell. But anytime we can create a delay, it, it's going to be advantageous because you're on the way, right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So from there, he um, pretty much retraced his step and went back out to the to the pharmacy lobby and into the family practice area where Dave Root individually mentioned that was in the hospital. Prior to him evacuating to that hospital, he was uh, in the pediatric clinic where he was the non-commissioned officer in charge, and he heard the gunfire and alerted the individuals in the pediatric clinic to start evacuating while he held closed the, the fire doors that led to the clinic. A lot of other people were risked their lives to um, ensure that the patients in that area got out and into the parking lot where they could flee and hide behind vehicles and run into the housing area and seek shelter in the, the housing areas there. It, it really highlights the chaos of an event like this where people don't really know what's going on. They just knew a lot of folks were running out the door. Didn't it, There was uh, some, some exercise equipment that was being assembled. They, they were accustomed to some loud noises leading to that event because of some, some, some things they were moving in there, exercise-type equipment. There were, there were times when medical professionals left their patients in their offices or wherever they were they were conducting a test or anything and ran out the building one of them thought they were chasing somebody who may have stole someone's chart or stole something but then found out what was going on and then in many cases they returned in to the when even they knew the danger they returned to go to get their patient out to warn them to help them leave as well and we're going to talk a little bit more about that the heroism that went on because man there there are just so many instances uh that that happened there uh, here in a few minutes. So we're going to come right back and, and let uh, let Andy finish up uh, the events that when Andy showed up. And then uh, we're going to talk about why so many lives were saved that day. Because I, I, there's one big reason why that is that I, I believe. We'll be right back. In the 1911 world, there's Nighthawk Custom and then there's everyone else. Nighthawk Custom makes the highest in quality 1911 under the motto, One Gun, One Gunsmith. Each 1911 is handmade with each part fitted by one gunsmith from start to finish. Nighthawk Custom is giving away one of their custom 1911s every 90 days this year. All you need to do to register is visit www.nighthawkcustom.com forward slash gunfightercast and sign up. I think he was outside at this point. Yep, he had chased some people down a hallway from the family practice um, area out a fire door that led to a loading dock and pretty much pursued the crowd outside where they scattered in behind cars and some people jumped in strangers' cars as they were just happened to be pulling out of the parking lot. There was a lot of chaos. Some people thought it was a fire drill at first. Some people just weren't aware of what was going on until they actually saw the gunmen or heard the gunfire. But yet, like you said, there was a lot of bravery as far as people trying to, they went out of their way and risked their lives to warn others and to, to safeguard others, help holding them down behind vehicles when they, they didn't realize that it was an actual incident and thought it was a, an exercise. They weren't taking seriously the use of cover. So he shot several people outside, um, some who were trying to hide in, in shrubbery that, that didn't quite give them good cover, and some that were hiding under vehicles. One doctor was shot, even though he was behind a car, I believe the bullet skipped underneath a vehicle and, and still managed to uh, hit him from a, a ricochet. And then the gunman's attention was drawn to the 
to the street when cars were driving by. He would turn and, and shoot at the vehicles, and that changed his direction to where he was headed back toward the annex on the same road that I was using to to travel to the scene. And that's when our paths met. He was walking down the street, firing to his left and his right as people were hiding behind vehicles, and and I was uh, traveling from the back gate there. And that's when I saw him in the middle of the road and, and ditched my bike and took up a kneeling position and challenged him. So he had fired, he had 75-round drum magazine, and he had 19 rounds left in his magazine when I dropped him. So he had fired, what is that, 56 rounds. For quite a while, I had beat myself up thinking that it took me forever to get there, that if I could have somehow managed to get there quicker, that I could have saved some lives. But as it turned out, it that whole my response time from the from the time that the first radio call went out that there was a man at the hospital with a shotgun to my radio call that shots were fired and the gunman was down less than two minutes had passed and I imagine it may have taken a minute for somebody to get to a phone and and contact the security police and I know that as soon as the law enforcement desk the desk sergeant as soon as he was notified he broadcast immediately so I would say that that incident probably took place in three minutes. And in that amount of time, one gunman was allow, uh, able to kill five people and wound 22. But like you were alluding to, the death toll would have been a lot higher if it hadn't happened in an area where there were so many skilled uh, medical personnel. So what I found so interesting here, a lot of these people may have attended a basic life support for healthcare providers, but these weren't trauma surgeons. You know, in most cases, there was an ER there with some really solid guys. There was a, a former PJ there uh, that had a, a tremendous amount of skill. There were people with skill, and those people with skill, uh, as far as emergency medicine, they were force multipliers. And they were, yeah. they, they were just, they were directing people and they were, they were saving lives at the rapid rate. And the book details that so well. I had tears in my eyes reading this thing. I, I could watch the sappiest chick flick all day long. <laughs> Won't bat an eye. But man, when I see some extreme heroism, like you've shown in this book and the stories that you told of like the, uh, uh, I think it was the colonel that was, had the people locked in the pharmacy that was like, Hey, he's still out there. We don't know the status. But there's people bleeding right now. Who's with me to go help? And almost yeah. almost all of them stood up. And I got chills right now saying it, man. They they're like, let's go. And they started grabbing all the galls and everything they could. And they started packing wounds and helping people and, and putting dressings on people and keeping blood in bodies while this was still going on. Um, they didn't know where he was. If they were, he's going to come around the corner and start shooting them. They wanted to not be casualties themselves. They wanted to stay alive and help people, but they were taking a tremendous amount of risk. And that's just one group. There were, there were, there, there's tons of those stories in this book, uh, of these people. And, and whenever I'm, I was reading it, I was picturing it in my mind as a movie. And I was just like, man, this is, this is better than anything out there. Such a horrible event, but these people, Put this, this, there was just this mass amount of heroism in one place that it was astounding to me, Andy. It, it was amazing. It is awesome. It, and they're just representative of the, there's probably a hundred more people who 
I had to cut their story out of the book, but those stories that I did keep in there are representative of, of all of the people who were stepping up that day. It's pretty inspiring. It makes you want to go out and train. It does. Not this Monday and Tuesday, but the following Monday and Tuesday, I'll be taking a, a Dark Angel medical class. Me and the wife are taking it, putting you know my money where my mouth is, traveling to Memphis, Tennessee to take that class. And we keep medical with us. And I've got some medical training that I, I've enhanced over the years and got it in the military. My wife doesn't have anything except for the things that I've taught her. But you know we need to be more prepared. And you know we're going to do it. And I challenge everybody to go do that because whenever you have that knowledge, man, you're it's a it's it is a force multiplier. You're not just saving that one person you're working on. If it's a mass casualty event, you can direct people and start triage before professionals arrive. And the, the amount of lives that can be saved by one person on a scene knowing what they're doing, it could be astounding. It could be huge. Absolutely. Yeah, I, after listening to your podcast about Dark Angel, I ordered a kit, and I'm working to get training on it myself. Oh, very good. Uh, he's got some great kit. We're going to continue talking about this, uh, uh, the, the, the people and why so many lives were saved right after this little quick break. Bravo Concealment Holsters is a Texas-based, high-quality holster manufacturer that I trust to conceal my defensive handguns. Bravo Concealment offers a 100% money-back guarantee and an unlimited lifetime warranty. Go check out the new Torsion technology at bravoconcealment.com and use our coupon code GUNFIGHTER at checkout for 10% off your entire purchase. Andy, there was a few points there. This was really whenever I, I, I started tearing up. There was a five-year-old doing chest compressions and, and doing CPR on, on her mom. Yes. I've got a six-year-old, and man, a picture in that in my mind was was horrific, but this child had the awareness and from something that, that maybe she had watched or heard or seen at some point to to try this medical this this aid on and uh even even at 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 a five year old was doing it a nineteen year old that had uh, the way I understood it she was an EMT but and she was a huge player in in saving lives going around and helping people and and specifically one person if I remember correctly but nineteen year old girl in the midst of this violence having the uh, the fortitude, uh, keeping it together and and <laughs> saving lives. It's uh, you you don't have to be a trauma surgeon, is what I'm getting at. You don't have to be some guy who's who's spent years and years training this stuff. I mean, you can be the person that saves lives. Yep, absolutely. That that training is instrumental, and and you never know when you're going to need it. It it's very impressive though to read these the statements and to talk to these people when I was researching the book because you're right. The, they could have just fallen apart, and nobody would have blamed them if they'd have just ran down the street seeking safety. But so many people stayed there on the scene and and rendered aid, and definitely saved lives. If it be most of these incidents, if there was twenty six people shot, there'd be a heck of a lot higher body count. But the people who uh, risked their lives as soon as the gunfire was over, even though the gunman was still out walking around, they put pressure dressings and and stop the the bleeding plug the holes and that definitely uh resulted in in less people losing their lives that day when i was reading this i i wrote down what i considered three factors that resulted in the only deaths being the ones that sustained mortal injuries at, at basically when they were shot uh there was they were unrecoverable and the, the three factors are one there was trained medical personnel on the scene and they were willing Two, there were people that may not have had the best emergency medicine training, 
but they were willing to help and do their best in, in the, the face of danger or immediate post-danger with, with the violence and, and the scene that's out there, the sights, sounds, and smells. They, they were still doing it. They were still willing to participate and help save lives and follow the direction of the trained personnel. And the third factor is there was actual medical kits, medical devices, gauze, things that were needed to control bleeding because we see the majority of deaths from exsanguination and active shooter events, they were they had bleeding control devices in the area. They were sealing chest wounds using uh, improvised devices. Uh, there was somebody who had a splint on their leg with a wet floor sign. Uh, they were making things happen with what they had available, but there was medical equipment on the scene. And I that's why I, I say carry a kit, have it with you. I would like to see more public access bleeding kits and more trained personnel, and and we could have similar results, even though they didn't happen in a hospital. Absolutely, yeah. Get the training and and carry the gear. That's what saved lives that day, and you never know when it's going to happen. I would love to tell more of the stories um, and and read some of them on here, Uh, but I I tell you, go pick up the book and, and read it. You restore your faith in humanity with what these people were doing. And the reason these so many lives were saved was one, Andy showed up, stopped this guy. But it was a huge attributing factor was all the willing people that jumped out there, put themselves in harm's way and, and started stopping bleeding and started treating injuries. And they kept people alive. And it was absolutely awesome. Proud of them. I'm glad that you got so much out of the book, Daniel. And I appreciate you taking the time to read it and having me on the show. Guys, thanks for listening. That's the end of part two. Stand by for part three, where Andy and I discuss the aftermath in a little more detail from a different angle while we cover some solutions to dealing with the psychological effects of violence. Hey guys, thanks for listening and tuning in for another episode of Gunfighter Cast. I really appreciate it. If you want to help support the show, you don't have to spend a dime. There's a lot of ways you can help. You can leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or any other channel that you receive podcasts through. You can subscribe on YouTube to our YouTube channel, or you can become a Gunfighter Cast patron through the Patreon site. You can see all these details at gunfightercast.com and click the support page. Thanks for listening. See you next time.